Well, uh, around Christmas, a lot of people have the practice of giving gifts. And uh, I'm wondering, can you think of an all-time great Christmas gift that you got or that you received, or even that you gave? You can show off a bit, giving you permission. Anyone out there think of a really great Christmas gift that you, you've received? Got a bunch of Grinches. Not you, just the people who give you gifts, I guess. I, I, I've gotten some good Christmas gifts over the course of my life. Uh, I think, man, it was a couple years ago already, uh, the church actually gave me a Traeger. And let me tell you, that's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, I love that thing. It's been great. It was a great Christmas gift. It was something that I had been wanting for a long time, but, you know, I'd, I'd never gone out and gotten it by myself. And it was also something that I didn't necessarily ask for. I think those are often the best gifts, right? Something that you didn't think of asking for but that someone got you and demonstrated they really understood something about you and that they really cared about you enough to do that. Uh, like, you know, the Traeger. Obviously, I love smoked meat, apparently. I'm not sure I even realized it at the time, but you guys knew that about me. It was a great Christmas gift. Hey, anyone else, any other gifts come to mind as we're, as we're talking? Yeah, Junior. Hot Roman Catholic Cowboy Guns. Hot Roman Catholic Cowboy Guns. I can remember it today, and it's the happiest thing. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Back then. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Somebody's going to say cowboy boots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dan? That's what I was just going to say. I remember, and I can still remember them. Some little boots that I got with a little guitar to play. And I'd go through the house stomping those boots. <laughs> I was just small. But they were something I really wanted but didn't expect to get. Yeah. And I got them for Christmas, and I just thought they were so special. Yeah. Yeah, cowboy guns, cowboy boots. I see a theme <laughs> emerging. So uh, let's go with Kat first. Um, to be able to grow up and have kids. Yeah. Uh, Gift, not necessarily even a Christmas gift, but just this wonderful experience. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't, he said I wasn't ready. Mm. So I said, okay, I want to grow up and have kids. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one, Kat. George? I finished my 100 missions over North Vietnam in December and was able to come home and be with my family. Wow. Yeah, at the end of the combat tour. Around Christmas. Nancy's nodding too. That was a Christmas gift for more than one person. So. It, uh, Tom or Dad, depending on who's talking to you. Uh, so when I was eight years old, there were ads on TV for Mr. Kelly's Car Wash, which was this toy that uh, had a water reservoir on it, put a little car through it, and water would dump on it. And it was motorized, so the car would move through the car wash, and it had, you know, clear plastic windows yeah. all the way down the length of it. So, uh -huh. yeah, so that was a big gift. I was excited to get Mr. Kelly's car wash. Yeah. This is often the season of gift giving, as we've said. Uh, and of course, uh, sometimes that's a problem, isn't it? 
sometimes we start getting so caught up in the gifts that we want and the gifts that we have to get for other people. You know, Christmas becomes sometimes a time of obligation, doesn't it? We've talked about this before, and Christmas is past. Uh, but there, there can be a sense of, of uh, debt when you give gifts, can't there? Like if you receive a gift from somebody that you didn't get a gift for, and now your Christmas is ruined because there's not time to go and, and make that right. There's a sense in which your know, gift giving can kind of become an unhealthy sort of thing, even in the midst of all the, the wonderful uh, memories that we can get out of it too. And part of that is because when we make Christmas entirely about the presents under the tree, perhaps, uh, then we've really missed the point, haven't we? Uh, Charles Dickens, when he wrote A Christmas Carol, do you remember how Ebenezer Scrooge learns how to keep Christmas in his heart all the year round? But what was it that he was really keeping in his heart? Because I think that uh, whatever he was doing, it had to be strong enough to bear the weight of not just one day, but the other 364 days each year. For however many years he had left, he needed something that could bear the weight of being kind and good and generous for the rest of his life. And as wonderful as the cowboy guns and the cowboy boots and the, the car washes and children and even coming home from a combat tour, as wonderful as all of those things are, I think that they're not quite enough to make us the people that God wants to make us. One of the things that strikes me is how few gifts I can remember. Remember, I, I asked you, uh, what are some of the truly great Christmas gifts that you've received? And no one spoke for a minute. Because so we had to stop and think, what were those really great gifts? See, if at Christmas we're looking to Macy's, or if at Christmas we're looking to Target, or if at Christmas we're even looking to Traeger, you know, ultimately Christmas isn't going to change our lives. It's not going to change our hearts, and it's certainly not going to change our world, because no matter how much smoked meat we have, we're still going to have all the same problems tomorrow, as well as possibly heart disease. <laughs> and so that's why this December, we want to spend some time, we're almost to December, by the way, and we want to spend some time talking about the Christmas gifts that God gives to us. See, I think that when we do gift-giving right, it's with a sense of we give as a, a sort of microcosm, as a small way of replicating what God has done for us. Whether the gift needs batteries or not, whatever that gift might be, it's meant to point back to what were God's gifts to us on that very first Christmas. The easy answer, of course, is, well, he gave us Jesus. And that would be the right answer, but it's not the detail that I, I want us to take a look at today. And I think the Gospel of John tells us about at least four different gifts that God gives to us in the incarnation, when the Son of God, who was a heavenly being, who was God himself in every way, just like the Father, because we are Trinitarian Christians, we believe that God is 
one God who exists eternally in three persons. He is one what is it and three who is it's. Now it's different from you and I. We are one what is it and one who is it as individuals. But God is a different sort of being. And when the Son of God took on flesh, that's what the incarnation is, by the way. If that sounds like a $10 word to you, it's when the Son of God, who doesn't have a human body, takes on a human body, becomes incarnate, takes on flesh. When that happens, we can see at least four different gifts. And this week, we want to talk about the first gift, which is light. Did you pick it up as we were reading uh, John 1, 1 through 9? Said things like, uh, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. He said, uh, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is all speaking about our Lord Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little bit. Also, I have like 10 minutes to give the sermon this morning because we're running late. But let me, let me tell you a little bit about what it means that Jesus Christ is light for us and that the light enters the world. The first thing that we need to know, it's in the first four verses here. It says, in the beginning was the word. Word is a name or a title that the Apostle John uses to tell us about Jesus Christ, about the Son of God. In the beginning. Do you remember any other part of the Bible that starts in the beginning? This is the participatory uh, part of the service still. So, you know, in the beginning. Yeah, Genesis is actually literally in the beginning, right? Very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And John says, in the beginning, to take our attention all the way back to that very first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is one of the reasons why we believe in a triune God, that God is a trinity, because it says that there was the Word, there was Jesus, and he was not only with God, he was God. You get how there's a sense of fellowship. You are with somebody, but also a sense of oneness. He wasn't just with God. He was God. He was with God in the beginning, just in case you missed it. Right? John's going slow. Through him, through the word, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Going slow. Everything was made through him. Look around. Everything you see. If the word was not with God in the beginning, if the word was not God in the beginning, you, none of this would be here. Everything comes from Jesus. In him was life. Doesn't that make sense? Remember the days of creation? It's, of course, the first day, let there be light wasn't it? Like light is in the nature of God somehow. Now, of course, we don't mean that God is a giant light bulb, that God glows in the dark. Light's being used metaphorically, symbolically here. But before we dig too deeply into that, I, I want to get this next bit. In him was life. God didn't just create light. 
He didn't just create the land and the oceans. He actually created life, didn't he? There was nothing. As a matter of fact, if you read Genesis in the original language, there is this sense, it says, in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. And those words in Hebrew have the connotation of chaos. Whatever there was, it was not under control. There, there wasn't anything. It was, it was just empty. It was without purpose. It was without form. It was without pattern. It was chaos, primordial chaos. And then God brings order to it. And order not least in bringing life from non-life. If you ever go to science uh, to talk about human origins, uh, it's fascinating. It's the, this idea of, you know, we are made up of uh, amino acids, right? Proteins at our most basic level. Uh, DNA itself is made up of these amino acids. And how did amino, amino acids ever come together you know, to actually form DNA? And even if you answer that question, even if you can get an idea of how that happens, how did that, those amino acids come together so as to make a conscious, thinking, feeling being? Uh, there was a movie a number of years ago called Expelled, and uh, it was about intelligent design versus uh, its detractors, essentially. Was the, the world actually designed by somebody? Was existence actually designed by somebody? And there's an interesting moment where they talk about how did, how did biogenesis happen? How did life come from non-life? And no one could explain it. They said, well, there are these crystals. Like, okay. So, well, but the crystals. Well, but, but how did life happen? Well, there were these crystals. It's like, but, but crystals are not alive. There's no explanation. We don't know. And that's not, you know, I'm not trying to make science and scientists look bad. It's just a question beyond what science can answer. Because science is concerned with, let's observe and report. And have you ever actually touched life itself? Pure life? Have you ever felt it? You ever seen it? We say things like, oh, that person is full of life, or that person is alive, but we can't actually touch that animating principle. It's not visible in, in that sort of way. And it's because life is actually contained in a person. Life comes from a person. A person who is like us in some ways because we are made in his image, but utterly unlike us in other ways. See, when light comes into our world, when we say that at Christmas, the light entered our world, part of what we're pointing out is that real life came, the author of life, the source of life, the one whose life is the liveliest of all lives. He came into our world. There's something powerful about that. You ever feel like, man, I'm not completely fully satisfied in my life? You ever feel that? Of course you feel that way. We all feel that way at different points. You know, I, I could be happier than I am right now. 
There are ever times in life where, where colors seem more vivid, where your, your senses feel like they're, they're extra sensitive. You, you, you're seeing more clearly. You're, you're feeling, you're really taking it in. It's like you're more alive in those moments. That's the author of life at work in you. There's, uh, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, an artist goes to heaven. He, he, wants, he sees how beautiful heaven is, and he wants to paint it. And they say, you, you can't paint this. Uh, uh, someone who lives in heaven, you can't paint this. See, the reason you were able to paint down on earth, at least early on when you were really doing this amazing art before you got all commercial or whatever it is, saying the reason you were able to paint is because you had these momentary glimpses of heaven itself, of life itself, beyond what our broken world is able to communicate. And you captured those. And those paintings, they were valuable and they made sense in a world where life was broken. But here, when you are surrounded by life, there's no need for your painting anymore. The whole of heaven is crying out what your paintings were only imperfectly communicating to the rest of the world. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of light because that light is the life of all mankind. And it comes to us in a person born just like you and me. How wonderful is it that Jesus you know, doesn't appear already 30 years old to go out and do his ministry? Because he puts his stamp of approval on every stage of human life by living it. He says, this isn't sin that you have to be born. This isn't sin that as a baby you cry when you're hungry. By the way, when you, if you ever sing away in a manger, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That's the hallmark version of Christmas, and it's not true. Because babies cry, and Jesus was a real baby. Not a pretend baby. He was a real baby. Real life comes down and puts its stamp on all of this world and begins to illuminate it. Now, let me give you three concrete ideas of what life coming to our world, of what light filling our world means. First of all, when we encounter the light of the world, we learn something about how to live here. We learn something about how to really live in John chapter 3, uh, Jesus encounters Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, but he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, you know, you're somebody special. And it's not clear just how special Nicodemus thinks Jesus is. We do know that at the end of when Jesus dies, Nicodemus is one of the men who helps bury him. Nicodemus obviously, I think, became a follower of Jesus at some point. But... Uh, Nicodemus says to Jesus, you know, we know uh, uh, you're a great guy. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. And Jesus tells him, that's not enough. It's not enough to know that. 
Truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus goes on, corrects him, and he eventually says, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things, and that's a problem. And then in verse 19, Jesus finally starts to reveal something. He says, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. See, the light reveals to us, true life in Jesus reveals to us, first of all, oh no, I was not living true life before. And there is a temptation there to shrink back and say, I'd rather stay out of that life that Jesus is offering. I'd rather stay away from Jesus because as long as I'm near him, I can't fool myself that I'm okay, that things are all right. But John, writing again, writing a letter uh, probably to the churches in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, in 1 John chapter 1, uh, he says, communicates something else to them, uh, to that church, about what it means to walk in the light. He says, uh, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Get that you can't shrink back from Jesus and say that, oh, I know God. It's not going to work that way. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, the first thing about the life that's in Jesus, the light of the world who comes to us at Christmas, is that it reveals the truth about how we're living. Are we living lives that are full of sin and evil and brokenness? Or are our lives beginning to reflect who Jesus is? And it's only in that latter way, lives beginning to reflect who Jesus is, that we can actually begin to enter into life. One last comment on that. Uh, when we are uh, wanting to hide, because we say, I, I've got this brokenness in my life. I don't want anyone to see it. Sometimes it's actually sin, right? I've done these things and no one can ever know. And we have to hide that part of ourselves from people. Does that sound like real life? Does that sound like satisfying life? You can come this close to me, but not closer, because then you'll start to see all of my ugliness and brokenness. Does that sound like real friendship and real fellowship? Of course not. But there is freedom, actually, to come into the light. I remember uh, I was in, uh, at an eco-gathering once. Uh, presbytery leadership was invited, and I was invited for a different reason, because I'm not in presbytery leadership. Uh, and uh, there was someone there who was talking to us about counseling and how you help people encounter truth in their life when they're, they're kind of covering it up. And uh, someone said, can you demonstrate that method? And everyone like looks around for who's she going to demonstrate this method on and expose these terrible secrets uh, about them. And, uh, and no one would volunteer. So I volunteered because I'm stupid. And the person started talking, you know, she starts asking me these questions and these follow-up questions. And, and I get to this point and I'm not willing 
willing to go any deeper. And she kept asking the same question. I kept saying, I don't know. I don't understand the question. And finally, I said, well, you know, I, I guess it's because I'm afraid people will find out the truth about me. And she said, what would happen if people found out the truth about you? I was very vulnerable <laughs> at the time. And, uh, and I thought about it for a minute. And I said, if people found out the truth about me, then I wouldn't have to hide it anymore. I think that I would feel free. See, it's scary to be vulnerable, to come out into the light. That's the only place freedom actually happens. It's the only place where you don't have to hide anymore. See, the light teaches us how to live. The light also teaches us what is true. Back in John chapter 1, in verse 18 now, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. If you are walking or living in darkness, can you see where you are? Can you take in the scenery around you? If you're in a, a dark room and you need to find something, will you be able to find it unless you turn on the light? Of course not. And see, that's what Jesus' life does. See, first we have to come out of the darkness into the light and we'll find, wow, that was painful to do that, but now I'm free. Now I'm really living life and now I can see. Now I don't have my sin hiding who God is from me because God's presence and God's reality and who he is reveals that sin about me. But that's already dealt with. And now I can just be in his presence. Now I can finally see him through the sun. See, the light teaches us what is true because it gives us light to see by where before we were trying to feel it out. That's what God has given to us at Christmas. And then finally, the light allows us to live lives of purpose. And it's the same, same idea here, the same light-darkness sort of contradiction. In John chapter 9, uh, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he sees a man born blind, uh, born blind. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Because they're living in the darkness, and they don't understand why people are blind or born blind. They, they just assume they must be bad. God must hate them. And Jesus says, well, no, that's not how this works. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Then he says this, as long as it is day, what do we see in the day? Light, right? As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He gives purpose and meaning to our lives. Just like with that man born blind. 
He says, everyone's looking at you and wondering why you're this way. And Jesus says, when the light of the world is here, when I am here with you, I can tell you it's so that God's works will be displayed in your life. And Jesus heals that man, and he can see again. And it sets off this ridiculous chain of events in John chapter 9, where everyone goes, wait a minute, isn't that the man born blind? And they're all talking to each other, and then the Pharisees hear about it, and they say, is that the man born blind? And they call the man in and say, tell us the truth. Are you the man born blind? He says, yes, I am. The Pharisees are like, I don't believe it. And they send him out, and they grab his parents. Is this your son who was born blind? And they say, well, it looks like him, but we really don't want to get in Involved, and the Pharisees are like, you know, we need a real answer. And they call the guy back in. You know, are you sure you're the man born blind? He says, yes, I'm positive. I am the man born blind. I would know. And the Pharisees say, how did this happen? And they say, he says, I told you, Jesus healed me. Do you want to follow him too? And the Pharisees start ridiculing him. Say, you want to follow Jesus? We follow Moses. Moses is the really good one. We don't know who this Jesus is or where he came from, but we know all about Moses. And the man born blind said to them, now here's a strange thing. No one has ever heard of a man born blind being healed. And Jesus comes along and he does it. And you say we can't know anything about him? Let me ask you, in that story, who is blind and who can see? Pharisees are blind and the blind man sees. Why? Jesus told us at the beginning of the passage, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And how will you see if you reject the light of the world? Man born blind could see. Let me tell you, uh, we've had, like I said, a couple of car accidents in the church recently. Uh, I talked to Renee last night, and one of the things that Renee said, which is also what Ed said, which is also what I often hear from people who are going through you know, serious illness. It's often what I hear from people who are going through serious hardship in their lives. They say something along these lines. This is what Renee said. You know, he said, I should have died. I saw my car. I don't know how I could have survived. God must still have something for me to do. See, that's seeing by the light of the world. That's what Jesus does for us. He shows us our meaning and our value and our purpose because for the first time we can finally see. Now let me ask you, if we don't have Jesus, how will we find meaning and value and purpose? We'll have to make it up, won't we? We'll have to invent it for ourselves. And that'll work for a little while. It will. But it won't work forever. And here's why. Tim Keller uh, gave a sermon on marriage once. And, well, a lot of times. He's given a lot of sermons on marriage. He's written a book on marriage. And I don't remember which one it was. But I was listening to one of his talks on marriage. And this is what he says. Are you looking for the right person to marry? says, you'll never find them. And here's why. People change. How many of you uh, have been married for 20 years or more? 
Yeah, a lot of you. Is your spouse the same today as when you got married? <laughs> well, that didn't work at all. So <laughs> No, no, of course. Not even Tom is the same <laughs> as when you got married. I guarantee, Tom, was your hair always gray? Yeah, score one for Ian. We did it. <laughs> Different. And sometimes those differences are dramatic and drastic, aren't they? And you know what part of that means? The things that satisfied you a year ago, 20 years ago, yesterday, may not satisfy you today. The things that satisfy you today may not satisfy you tomorrow, or in a year, or 10 years. We are all constantly changing. And that means if we have to invent our own meaning or value or worth, how we do that has to change every day as well. And it's not going to work forever. See, what we'll end up doing is just distracting ourselves until finally we're gone. It's only in the author of life, in the light of the world, that we can confidently say things like, I am alive today because God still has work for me tomorrow. Only in the light of the world. This is the first of God's great Christmas gifts to us. And, and here's the thing about it it will still be just as valuable tomorrow as it was today. Ten years as it was last year. At the end of your life as it was at the beginning of your life. You can take it to the bank, folks. And it's better than FDIC insured.